Welcome to QUT Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, Professional and Executive Education for the Real World. With me today is Jean Burgess. Jean is Professor of Digital Media and Associate Director for the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society and School of Communication, QUT. Jean was nominated by the Australian as one of Australia's top researchers and leader in the field of communication. Professor Burgess's research focus on, focuses on the social implications of digital media technologies, platforms and cultures, as well as new and innovative digital methods for studying them. Uh, her most recent publication is Twitter, a biography with co-author Nancy Bain. Welcome, Jean. Did I get that right? You did. <laughs> <All> that? Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot in those titles, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know. We're really, we're really, I uh, so to have, the, you know, like Australia's uh, field leader. Yeah, that was amazing. In fact, QT's got a few um, leaders in different fields, so yeah. we'll we'll, um, we'll interview them um, uh, over as the year progresses. So, um, so Jean, you've researched two digital platforms in some depth, both YouTube and Twitter. So, when you look at these platforms, what kind of questions do researchers such as yourself look at? Yeah, the the questions have changed um, over time. I first started looking at both of those platforms when they were really quite new and there was just sort of a bit of buzz surrounding them. And I guess we were really just trying to understand what role these new platforms might be playing in the way our media and communication system works. And why they were interesting at the beginning was that they were bringing a whole new population of um, participants into the media system. So ordinary people or bloggers or or um, amateur aspiring creatives uh, were playing a role in in um, in public communication in our cultural life through their participation on these platforms. So that's what we, that's what interested us at the beginning. Um, but of course, as they've grown and matured and gone mainstream, uh, they've become both much more significant to society and much more problematic as well in different yes. ways. Yes, so uh, yes, they they have changed. So there's uh, you know some wonderful social things that have blossomed from our participation, but there's like everything there's uh, that's complex. There's a dark side. <laughs> so um, what as um, engagement in these platforms? Uh, I suppose it's different for YouTube and Twitter because they're different kinds of media and one's visual. I suppose Twitter is visual too, yeah. So how is that sort of uh, the general population engaging in media, so uh, in social media? Um, how do you think in a big picture sense that's changed the nature of information flows and uh, and how we get our information? Well, yeah, these are really, really big questions, mm. aren't they? Uh on, on the one hand, uh, what motivated me originally was thinking how, frankly, how wonderful it was that with that we were able to connect with people on the other side of the world mm. just through sharing aspects of our everyday life with them um, and the really interesting way that we could sort of combine our roles as citizens of the world, consuming news and talking about news with our roles as, you know, as human beings, as friends, as family. Um, so that was wonderful. Uh, as the As the platforms have matured and as their business models have matured and particularly as as journalists or, or and marketing people and politicians have come to see that they could use these platforms for for their own purposes the stakes have gotten much higher yeah. and so um, as, as you're kind of hinting at um, sort of malign or less well-intentioned actors have found ways to exploit the same affordances or or, or features um, of those platforms that enable ordinary people to just mm. uh, share 
baby photos and and have a and have a bit of a laugh with their friends, which is really what they yeah. were designed for at the beginning. Yes, it is fascinating, isn't it? That um, I suppose when um, or I guess that what we're all alluding to is the fact that a, a US leader can. Uh, can gauge directly um, with uh, the populace uh, in the same way that we can. So whether we're on the same platform as, as the US, well, yeah. Uh, yeah, president yeah. of the US, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I don't think anyone would have thought that at the beginning of Twitter that a head of state would be virtually declaring war. Like, Yes, he did. You know, because yeah. our, our words, when we're a, the president of the United States, our words can have great import. And, mm. uh, so it's a bit more than just... Uh, talking directly to your to your voting base, um, mm. that they can actually, that these platforms can actually be the stage on which. Mm. Um, I mean, it's been it was ever thus, I suppose. Like, if uh, for a, an authoritarian leader would find uh, a social way, uh, so use media to speak directly to the people without any disintermediation, you know. So. Uh, Absolutely. Or yeah. you just make really good friends with a really powerful media mogul yeah. and, and well, make sure their newspapers reflect your perspective, as we see in Australia. Yes, but we who don't have friends uh, in high places, we too can participate. Yeah, and I, I must true. say that um, I had a, um, you're good on social. Uh, so <laughs> there's, a, there's an art, isn't it, now that we're all engaging in Twitter uh, it, as universities. So hmm. most university leaders will be engaged in some way on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I have to say I'm, I engage in the, as the unreconstructed middle-aged academic that I am. So, you know, I write in full sentences. <laughs> And there's, and there's no hashtags or uh, and it's not terribly social because because yeah. uh, I don't necessarily reference other people's works you know so and so I'm learning uh, on the, on that um, yes on that scale but you're really good at it so what makes someone effective on these platforms uh, so the message cuts through other, as opposed to you know someone like myself it's well it's funny that you say I'm good at it because I I don't do what's in the marketing communication oh, manuals about at all. how to engage not at yeah. all not at yeah. all and. And, you know, one of the things that we look at in our book, Twitter, a biography, is how the idea of what it means to be good at social media, media. or good at Twitter yeah. has changed over yeah. the life oh, okay. of the platform. Tell me more. Well, really what I do is what I did at the beginning, which is to combine um, silliness, you know, mm. really deep personal stuff I, yeah, with yeah. my work. And oh, okay. Because yeah. a lot of us came to Twitter from blogs, uh, mm. blogs that were partly personal. You know, we were... Uh, early career academics. So we were trying to figure out what our thesis was about and mm. make friends. And that's what we carried over into social media. It's very much what Twitter was designed for. So it's both maybe um, that I've kind of grown up with the platform, but also I'm like, I have a, a really strong explicit commitment to continuing to practice social media oh, practice in that way, media. So despite probably, yeah. all the pressures mm. from being in a workplace that has mm. all kinds of policies Jeez. about, yeah. uh, and it can be a fine line to tread where you you, you want to be an authentic person and you mm. might have a political point of view, for mm. example. Mm. Um, so you have to be careful. But we in universities are allowed to express, apparently. There's a rule. Well, free There's speech rule. is very important <laughs> in universities. It is, uh, yes. So it is that. So that's really interesting. So you do combine yourself with your work so that when you speak on Twitter, um, you would combine. So people know who Gene Burgess is as well as Gene yeah. Burgess's work. Yeah. Well, it's actually, mm. I, it's a it's a pretty deep thing that's actually important to the discipline that I, uh, the scholarly mm. discipline yeah, of I cultural thought. studies. Yeah, where, I thought you were good at it because, you know, that was kind of your expert field as well. Well, yeah, yeah I, um, you know, I, I, there's there's a, a strand of um, humanities and social science um, uh, called cultural studies that um, was really built in the study of everyday life and how, that's the stage on which politics really plays out for people. That's mm. where all kinds of um, all kinds of policies and economic realities really 
you know, that's where the rubber hits the road for people. And so that's where I kind of focus my mm. my research. So mm. it's important that I'm authentic about my You're own authentic. life. Yeah. Yes. So um, speaking about, I meant to start with it, speaking about being authentic, I understand that you were a musician to start with and a flute player. I, I was. See, I've done my research. Yeah. You have done your research. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, my first degree was a Bachelor of Music oh, at, me too. at UQ. Yeah. Oh, I okay. thought, and I thought, I bet you went to UQ. I went to yeah. UQ and the con. Um, oh, and okay. so I graduated into the recession that we had to have with mm. a degree in flute performance, <laughs> which was useful for flute performance. Yeah. Um, and I did that for 10 years and then went back to uni as a mature age student, oh, okay. actually. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty yeah. much my story too. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. It's um, a common story. Yeah. Yeah. Starting with something and, and progressing. Yeah. Um, but it does add depth doesn't it, I think. Like I it, tell you what, also mm. being a musician, there's a lot of transferable skills that oh, I've I recognised. So playing in a Playing in a band is yeah. the best Social. kind of teamwork. Uh, it is. Uh, mm. you, can, you can imagine, I think, mm. yeah. Did you play in a? I played oh, in a band, orchestra. orchestras, yeah. 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 Okay. A lot of teaching, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well done. So, oh, yeah, I went to the con, which at this that time, so I'm older than you, was actually here on the QUT Gardens I remember. Campus. No, it was yeah. here when I went there too. Oh, was it? Yeah. yeah. So I can't imagine how we were all in that kind of small space. but um, And in a time pre any social media, I can't imagine what the life would have. It was a hothouse anyway, so it add sure social was. media to that and it yeah. would have just, I think, just exploded. I'm sure we've both got lots of stories. <laughs> um, but talking about exploding, but there's, um, when you said that there's, you know, all kinds of benefits from us engaging um, in media. Uh, but there's also downsides. So mm-hmm. it has, I mean, I don't, I, I'm imagining that bad social behaviour has been with us for all time, but social media tends to amp it up, I think. So what do we know about that phenomenon of, um, I guess, of trolling, I suppose you'd say, and, um, and dysfunctional, I'll, I'll call it dysfunctional social behaviour on, on uh, media platforms. What have we observed about that kind of behaviour? Well, as you say, um, bad or harmful social behaviour is not new. And as you also said, social media platforms amplify mm. everything. Mm. Um, trolling um, originally meant just deliberately kind of messing with the online community, mm. um, yeah. playfully, mischievously, just trying to kind of trying to get a rise out of people. That's what trolling means. I think what some of what we're seeing now, uh, particularly... Uh, particularly with um, white supremacism and alt-right politics, is a deliberate weaponization of the internet's natural kind of affordances for amplification and and for trolling, and also a deliberate exploitation of an aspect of internet culture where you can always say you were just kind of joking. Oh, so okay. this is kind of baked mm. into the internet's culture. This kind of um, some scholars t- talk about. Um, the the Im- Im- ambivalence of internet culture where it's like trying to figure out whether something is trolling or abuse or parody or satire or actually deadly serious hate speech is one of the biggest challenges for mm. for these platforms now um, mm. and and due to the network effects where things can be amplified and spread very far beyond their original the original speaker or the original, poster that that makes the stakes much higher it does make the stakes much higher and then people can find themselves the target of um shame <laughs> you know i was just listening to tim minchin's song this morning you know like 15 minutes of shame <laughs> yeah <laughs> when we'll all be unforgivable <laughs> yeah so it has uh, uh the amplification has meant that you could be the target of a global uh hate campaign really which i i think in in analog media probably was not the case so much yeah yeah we could we could talk about um 
similarities, I suppose, to gossip, mm. uh, gossip mm. in 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 small oh, villages, column? for example, yeah, or just a small yeah, village, village, right, where mm. your world is that big. And so mm. if the whole village like is shunning that. you, yeah. it's just as profound, isn't it, than mm. if you live in a global village. Mm. Uh, so I think the dynamics are the same. But, yeah, the role of media has, uh, has so, changed. So on a larger scale. Yeah. So, yes. Um, so, yeah, the village was been your, would have been your whole world, which is probably exactly. the shame. The shame would have been of a similar magnitude, I suppose. Well, yeah, yeah, it'd, yeah ruin your life in just the same way, I think. Mm. And I guess, you know, when you talk about um, the, it could be ridicule, it could be... Um, uh, you know, poking fun. So if you're the t- target of social of a social media troll, um, it's always a bit of a dilemma about what you do with it. You know, do you play along uh, or do you arc it up, you know, um, and put that troll on the front page, you know, of your Instagram mm-hmm. feed. So what is there received wisdom about what we should do if we find ourselves? Well, as you probably know, the received wisdom is don't feed the trolls. Don't feed the trolls. Yeah. So, mm. um, so... If it if it appears that people are just trying to get a trying to get it not just but trying to get a rise out of you trying to get a, a reaction and trying to mobilize other people to get involved in piling on then just blocking and reporting and denying oxygen is far more effective. However, if I don't know you're a, you're a public figure and another public figure is apparently mobilizing people to um, engage in a sneaky hate campaign against you based on some aspect of your identity, it might be in the public interest for mm. you to actually call that out and mm. get media coverage of it. So mm. it's like everything, it depends. It depends. And it's complicated. And it, and it, I know. It just make, <laughs> makes it way more complex. Yeah. yeah. Um, fortunately, yes, because I've um, led a low-profile life, it hasn't. Oh, actually, yeah, it does happen even in small social situations like um, being the you know chair of a non-profit organisation mm-hmm. and you find yourself someone in the committee, you know, has a vendetta, then they, mm-hmm. they can they can use social media very effectively. Things I can think. go horribly mm-hmm. wrong on little neighbourhood Facebook yes, groups as well, as we all that, know. Um, that video that just became popular last week, the Village Church Committee, did you oh, see that yeah, one? Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. In my neighbourhood yeah. Facebook group, it's all it's always about stray dogs. Stray dogs. Yeah. Yeah, and break-ins. Yeah. yeah. That's... um. Yes, um, but in terms of um, the ability for the large social platforms to respond, mm-hmm. um, I, I saw that um, Facebook, I think it was Facebook who tried artificial intelligence as a mechanism um, and they had very grandly said that AI will just about solve the problem um, and they will be able to use algorithms that will, you know, remove hate speech, but but not so much, I think. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, all of the platforms use... Um, automation and AI to some extent and they'll continue to do that but sort of hidden behind the scenes there's a huge army of um, quite poorly paid manual labourers who have to look at awful things Mm. things so that we don't have to. The other thing that makes it really tricky and where the platforms are a little bit slow to come on board is that it's not necessarily you can't necessarily diagnose hate speech from a piece of content um, or abuse, in fact. So we know, for example, with um, people in domestic violence situations, maybe they get a text every single night from their ex that says, how's the dog? 
right? Mm. So that individual piece of content could look innocuous on its own. You have to understand So an algorithm wouldn't pick it up. Yeah. So the person who is experiencing harm has to be involved as well in in reporting and in diagnosing and explaining what's going on. So Mm. there's going to be a role for machine learning um, and and for AI, but there's going to be a role for more respectful engagement with the community as well. Uh, I guess that, that issue about the poorly paid um, people behind the scenes who have to play a role in in this hate speech. Um, it kind of brings up, you know, a larger issue about employment in, um, you know, the digital sphere. Uh, you know, they, they shouldn't be poorly paid, really, should they, playing such a vital function. Uh, yeah. And the, and the kind of, um, yeah, they should be getting... Um, Yes, danger money, I it's think, a, really. Yeah, it's a pretty big, broad issue for our planet, I think, as a whole, that mm. the, the extreme wealth disparity that's emerging, the way that these digital platforms have made huge profits during the pandemic mm. and then the, the, um, the treatment of workers throughout their value chain. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and that uh, we should we should continue. I, I'd like to have a whole um, series actually on that phenomenon because uh, I think the the pandemic and the response to the pandemic has just kind of amplified um, those kind of tendencies. Uh, so yeah. and sometimes we have deliberately stayed away in the podcast from critical observation, but I think we probably well, shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, um, I reckon there's a there's a big seismic shift underway though. You see. I think you see a growing realisation and consensus among most people, most states, most governments um, on either side of politics in the world that these platforms, companies are probably too large Mm. and probably need both more oversight and regulation Mm. and to be broken up. And to be broken up, yeah. Yeah. And and they've always got good reasons why that's not in the you know, the public interest. But did you have any thoughts or comments on Australia's proposed legislation um, to um, ask Facebook to contribute to the revenue of our traditional media? Uh, Yes. So much of the much of the reporting uh, around that proposed scheme um, sort of pits Facebook against Australia, but it's and, and Australia is uh, fighting on behalf of um, local local citizens' uh, ability to access news and uh, local news companies. But it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, it's really about. Um, Australia on behalf of Rupert Murdoch mm, trying to get yes. a slice of Facebook's revenue mm. um, for established commercial media players. They might have dragged the ABC into it, which would be a bit tricky uh, because it's very important that the ABC's precisely not a commercial media mm. operation. Um, and it wouldn't have helped the the huge number of local, rural, regional, community um, and, and minority news organisations. So... Uh, I, I think it's really just, honestly, it's just a bunch of very powerful um, white men mm. um, writing bad code at each other, honestly. Mm. Writing bad code at each yeah. other. So, well, whether it's legal code or whether it's because yeah. Facebook's, Facebook's um, sort of posturing and um, saying, right, well, we'll turn off the news again, um, they did it in a very uh, unsophisticated way purely demonstrating how hard it is to make determinations about what a, a news organisation actually is. So they were doing it to prove that the, the, that the proposed legislation was written badly, but mm. they just proved that um, actually they're interfering in, they're playing a major role in the, the news and media environment of the world and don't really have a thoughtful approach to doing that. that mm. 
Uh, so is that they their their own sort of organisational algorithm doesn't allow for the for. Uh, you know, I suppose that, to me, those their algorithm as an organisation are anything um, that makes a profit. So that um, and to put themselves as um, social actors is not not part of their modus operandi. I think it it wasn't early on in their DNA, but um, it's it's um, incontrovertible that Facebook is playing a major role in mediating um, political processes and. Uh, and, you know, the information ecosystem around a global pandemic, for example. So it's unavoidable um, and very complex. And it is very complex. But we did learn with Twitter that they did say originally that they they can't stop uh, uh, pre- uh, President Trump, you know, and his hate speech, but they could. That's at, the, at the end, they did remove uh, President Trump's account and, uh, and apparently 70% of that kind of disinformation evaporated yeah. with him. Um, so it is possible yeah. uh, if they choose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which kind of brings us to the question, I, I guess, about um, some of the questions that will guide you, your your research and the, res- the research of your colleagues um, mm. into the future. So uh, you are involved in an ARC Centre for Excellence, um, Automated Decision Making and Society. So what questions um, uh, are you pursuing in that centre? Yeah, that's that centre is really taking our social and digital and social media research uh, much more deeply into these questions about what kinds of uh, platform governance, content curation, content distribution are being automated and with what implications. And some of the most exciting and challenging areas of research are in trying to figure out what methods we can use to mm. actually to what get access. Can you use? Well. Uh, Traditionally, we've found all kinds of ways to access the digital traces of activity on those platforms. So, uh, you know, gathering lots and lots of tweets to try to map patterns of public communication around the Queensland floods was one of the first big projects that we did. Oh, okay. But if you want to understand what the platforms are actually doing in terms of what content they leave up and what content they take down, um, there's, there's even more creative methods that are required. At the same time, platforms are increasingly kind of locking researchers out from accessing data directly from their platform. So so you can't scrape or well, trace. You, you, yeah. yeah, there are things you can do. Yeah. There are things mm. you can do. <laughs> but uh, also where... What, what, would, you, what would be their motivation for, for doing that? A lot of it is very sensible commercial motivations, which there, there are little gizmos called APIs that allow one piece of software to talk to another piece of software and get data from it. Mm. And they're open to misuse by bad actors who want to... Uh, mess with the platform. They're also they they also have rules in place to prevent people just scraping all of the content from the platform and oh, republishing it somewhere else, which mm. would be bad. Um, but I, I think it's fair to say there's been a tense relationship in terms of oversight. So that the platforms would generally prefer to launch their own little funding schemes. Uh, for research and handpick the researchers who get to do that research rather than having real public oversight. But uh, a lot of our research, uh, projects at the moment are pushing towards involving the public quite broadly in donating their data. So using various kinds of software to enable people, if they want to, to uh, share with the researchers what search results they get, for example, or or what YouTube recommendations they get. So, so this oh, is a I really see. exciting mm. new area of of yeah. uh, methods development for us. And it shows what it is. I was thinking it was me, what an intensely boring person I am. <laughs> would, that, would that be revealed by the basis of uh, what my search uh, profile looks like? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm sure you're not boring at all. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's no. I should stop that stupid. It is a um, yeah week where we celebrate International Women's Day. So women's tendency for yeah, de- self de- deprecation, yeah, is something that we've got to monitor. Um, but but what you individually, um, Professor Burgess, what interests, what um, research are you currently thinking of yourself? So is it going to be um, uh, Instagram a biography? Uh, I'm working on a new book with colleagues called Everyday Data Cultures that's really about how datafication, so, you know, all of the different aspects of our everyday life that somehow get rendered into data and, and, and aggregated and used for various kinds of commercial processes, how that's actually experienced um, across all sorts of aspects of our everyday life, but also uh, the role that we have um, as citizens in negotiating that, in resisting that, um, and and in educating ourselves and and others, so that's it's one big thing on my plate. And uh, I'm involved in a lot of these projects that use new kind of computational methods to figure out what platforms are actually doing in terms of their own automation of um, governance decisions and moderation and so on. Mm. Um, just one last. I haven't fed this to you before, so I, I right. apologise that it had um, occurred to us that the use of social media has changed the way that we provide learning for our students. Um, so that we, the, the way that we traditionally um, would teach our methods, our design uh, for engaging or sharing information and having students engage with information and content, uh, we need to shift that too, particularly as a new generation comes and will expect new things. So is your school ahead of the curve? I like to think the School of Communication would be ahead of the curve on that kind of thing. But Well, this is an opportunity to plug our Masters of Digital Communication, yeah, which is – it's. Um, specifically designed around really skilling people up to operate as well, as skilled communicators but also in a range of kind of um, knowledge professions that require a sophisticated understanding of of not only of social media but of data science as well and uh, and so it's it's very hands-on um, and kind of immersed in the digital media environment uh, so learning both learning computational methods as you learn to, um, analyze what's going on with mm. social media. So, in fact, we um, in the higher education should probably undertake that master's. I to think everyone up, should undertake that master's. <laughs> it sounds like, yeah, we have to develop a little bit of a professional yeah. uh, education component of that, yeah. Jean, do you think? And maybe QTX yeah, can, um, yeah. can uh, promote that. Yeah. So uh, thanks, um, Professor Burgess. That was, that was fabulous. And um, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of QUT Exec Insights. If you would like more information about QUTX programs for you or your organisation, search QUTX, that's Q-U-T-E-X, and you will find our full range of professional and executive development programs. Thanks to Sue York for sound recording and editing. See you next time.